Hi, folks. We are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you have time, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcast. It helps other listeners find us, and we read them for your feedback. We are here for you, with you, and because of you. Thank you. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. More than two years after the first COVID lockdowns, the urge to claim victory over the virus is strong. And yet public health experts warn we are not out of the woods. That feeling of not being out of the woods and not knowing what comes next is especially familiar to the millions of Americans living with long COVID symptoms. Roughly one in 10 people who contract COVID will develop long-term symptoms. That's according to a study released last month by the CDC. Science educator and molecular biologist Dr. Raven Baxter, known as Dr. Raven, the science maven, has long COVID, and she's used her powerful social media feed to chart her journey. She has gotten many accolades for her work, including being a recent Forbes 30 Under 30 honoree. And she's long been working to make STEM fields more inclusive, telling future scientists that no matter what their race, gender, or cultural background, they are needed. At a time when long COVID has been draining her energy, Dr. Raven generously shared her time to talk with us about her work and her health journey and give some perspective to other people facing long COVID themselves. Dr. Raven, I am so thrilled to have you on. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I have just really admired how you have been evolving on the Twitters, and we're going to get to your specific health journey, which is a lot of what you've been tweeting about. But, you know, your work as a science communicator has garnered you over 100,000 followers on Twitter. You are making moves. So can you just give us a little bit of a taste of your background in the sciences? Sure. I am a lifelong science enthusiast. I feel like I popped out the womb as a scientist and it's just with this natural curiosity for the world. Like there's so many questions to ask and find answers to in science. And it's the most fun of a rabbit hole that I've ever chased down. You recently have had a big journey in your own health. You know, you have been um, a science maven communicating and you got COVID and not one of the in and out cases. I, I got COVID in early December and I felt a lot of mental and physical fatigue, but it did disappear in about a month. But tell us a little bit about your journey. I got COVID in mid-December of 2021 and I had a case that resembled like a flu, but a really severe flu. And my initial infection period lasted about a week and a half. But then I would say that progressed into lingering symptoms that looked quite a lot different than what my initial infection was. And so the lingering symptoms were neurological issues fatigue, immense fatigue, digestive issues. I had a total lack of appetite. Um, I had hearing loss and impairment. And you talked about people complimenting you on your weight loss, you know, and you're like, uh, actually, this is a situation. How does it feel to live your recovery in public and have people 
who don't really understand what you're going through say things to you or question things? Yeah, it really, like, during my recovery, I've learned so much about what it means to be chronically ill or have a disability. Um, I really feel for people who are dealing with this. It's hard, you know, it, it can feel really lonely, especially when people don't understand what you're going through, you know, especially when they look at you and they say, well, you're skinny, you look healthy. There's always so much going on underneath it all. Um, and so it, it can be frustrating, but there's been a lot of teachable moments in the past few months for me to talk about chronic illness and disability and what it means to me. You know, we've had on Alice Wong of Disability Visibility, which is a, you know, multimedia project that talks about disability and is centered in the experience of, you know, many different types of people, including people of color with disabilities and, and the level of expectations that people need to risk their own lives to conform to some putative social norm is pretty amazing. Like, amazing meaning kind of terrifying. And and so how do you talk to people, if you do, about the idea that wearing masks, even as we are dropping mask mandates, is also something that affects people who have immunocompromised systems or other health conditions? How do you talk to people about that? I want to say that wearing a mask is not a foreign idea to many societies around the world. I've seen my friends who live in different places in China wearing a mask before the pandemic started, and it's very much a normal thing. And so I think, you know, we really need to start working on a bit of a culture shift here and realize, hey, we might not have been a society focused on wearing a mask, but now we are and we have to make that pivot. And yeah, changes can be uncomfortable, but can also be very necessary. In this case, it's necessary to save lives, meaning keep people from dying, but also keep people from being infected and also keep people from getting long COVID. One of your recent tweets said, two months ago, I could barely take 10 steps and now I can take a thousand. I am so proud of myself. Um, and you talk about having a long way to go. How are you feeling about the trajectory of your recovery? And what has it taken you, I don't know if spiritually is the right term, but spiritually or emotionally to have to wrap your brain around the changes that you wake up to every day and have to figure out, you know, where your health is? I'm still figuring it out, to be honest. Even in this interview, I have shortness of breath, like kind of gasping for air a little bit after every few words. Like I don't, I don't normally talk like this. Um, you know, it's tough. I have a lot going on, um, and I'm not really there yet to be giving advice to people on how to get through this. It's very intense. Um, physically, it's very intense emotionally, not only because of the just pure emotional aspect of this, but COVID also impacts your mood. You can get brain inflammation and that can impact your mood. And so, you know, I think that support groups are really important and have been very instrumental to my progress. You know, I take it day by day. 
I've learned not to expect anything because you never know what the next day will be like. And I just try to make it through each day. Honestly, it's it's really not easy. I know that you said you're not in a position to offer advice to other people, but to the extent that there's things that you've had to deal with on your journey that are super practical, what kinds of things have you been thinking about? Um, thinking about how, you know, there are doctors who will sweep your symptoms under the rug and say, oh, you're just having anxiety or, you know, you need more sleep, stuff like that, all because they don't really know anything about long COVID and they don't really know how to address your issues. So I think it's important to try to find someone who does have a solid foundation of knowledge about long COVID, joining a an advocacy group or support group. There's plenty of them. Are you all affiliated with the Body Politic COVID support group? No, but I was really fascinated. You know, after we launched, I had heard about them. There are different body politics and, you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about them? I am a member of their long COVID support group and it's been amazing. We have a giant, like several thousand member Slack community and there's a victories channel where people talk about their recovery and the little victories are huge victories and everything in between that they have along the way. It's super uplifting just to see how far people have come. And then there's also a 24-7 Zoom chat room that you can just pop into the chat anytime to cry, vent, or just say hi or be silent. And we have trivia nights on Saturdays. Um, and that's that's a lot of fun. Yeah, and, and we will provide access to that, but it is wearebodypolitic.com slash COVID-19. How have you thought about, you know, circling back to your social media feed, which is how I've been tracking your progress? Social media is a very complex space, but it seems to me that you are using it in an incredibly powerful way. But does that also take stuff out of you? Well, yes and no. You know, I'm not here to be a suit. I'm not here to be a lab coat. I'm here to be me. You know, I don't fit the bill for what mainstream science is. I want to make science a place where everyone feels comfortable. And a part of that is being exactly who you are to normalize authenticity in, in science so that anybody can feel like they belong because they can be themselves. Imagine that you were talking to sixth graders about science, which I'm sure that you've done before. What would you tell them about this world? Maybe talking to different types of kids who might not have thought about this before as a path for them. I would say get ready to have so much fun. I think that science is the gift that keeps on giving. It's like this adventure that you can go on your entire life and never get tired of it. There will be some challenges along the way, but I love science and nobody can take that away from me, no matter what. Dr. Raven, I just want to say I'm so grateful to you for making time for us at a time when you need rest. And it means so much to me that you were willing to talk to our body politic and share with us. And I wish you rest and I wish you healing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. 
That's Dr. Raven, the science maven, molecular biologist and popular science communicator. You can follow her work on Twitter at RavenSCIMaven. Coming up next, this week, the Our Body Politic Presents series brings you more gems from Truth Be Told on tips for raising healthy, free Black children. As I'm going down this journey to positive parenting, I'm also starting my decolonizing journey. I'm also realizing, like, there's a really big piece missing in how we talk about parenting with Black parents. Plus, sipping the political tea on the pandemic and mental health. That's on Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. With Our Body Politics Presents series, we bring you stories and conversations from independent voices in audio. This week, we bring you highlights from the episode Protection from Tanya Mosley's podcast, Truth Be Told. It centers on parenting coach Yolanda Williams, who works with Black parents to push beyond their personal fears and anxieties around raising free and healthy Black children. Let's take a listen to Protection from Truth Be Told. Hey, Mom, how are you? Hey, Tanya. Okay, how are you? Doing good. My mom is amazing. She raised me and my brother in Detroit by herself, and she did it while working every day and at one point going to school full-time to get her master's degree. She also treated our education like it was another full-time job, always involved in searching for the best schools and camps and programs. She gave me permission to let my imagination run wild. I wanted to believe, you know, that we were going to see something magical or whatever. If there is a such thing as an upside to poverty, this is it. We didn't have a lot of money, so my mom used her imagination to bring joy into our house. But that didn't take away the stress of being broke and trying to raise two kids alone. She yelled a lot. And when I was a kid, I didn't understand it until I had my own children. You sort of raised a child like you were, and I did raise my voice. You hollered a lot. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Let me just say that then. I did holler a lot. I'm not going to deny it, but uh, I tried to refrain from from whoopings or beatings because I got a lot of those. And... Uh, that's like an old school, you know, we would get, our parents would get switches and belts and it was normal. It was normal in our community. We would have webs on our legs, you know, go get me a switch or my belt. She's right about it being a normal thing in our community. I mean, so many of us have stories, right? Like parenting coach Yolanda Williams. Her mom raised her alone too. And Yolanda didn't exactly feel like she was wanted. Uh, my mom was in survival mode. And when you're in survival mode, it's really hard to form deep connections with your children when, you're, when it's just a constant state. This realization about her own mother is part of what Yolanda learned while figuring out her own journey to motherhood. I was 36 when I got pregnant, okay? Like, I was well on my way to living my um, bougie auntie dreams. I, I didn't like children, and I didn't want to be around them. And I realized, and it wasn't until after I had my daughter, Gia, I realized that was because of how I was raised. I felt like I was a burden. And so I saw children as burdens. I didn't see them as the wonderful teachers that they are, that now I can see them as. But but before, I was just like, they're loud, 
they they require a lot. You got to spend all your money on them. Ain't nobody got time for this. Like I don't I don't want that responsibility. And I understood that I wasn't in a place mentally um, and emotionally to be who I thought a, uh, a parent should be. And so when Yolanda made peace with having a baby girl, she started studying and searching for community. Big questions were coming up for her. Like, what does it mean to raise children under systemic oppression? And at the same time, try to resist oppressive systems. These questions led her to create the online space, Parenting Decolonized. I want to discuss the the impacts of white supremacy, of capitalism, of patriarchy on parenting, on children, and also discuss what I call and what people hate to hear, adult supremacy and childism. Woo. <laughs> we'll get to all of that, including what it means when she says adult supremacy and childism. But first, Yolanda and I got into the first step of decolonizing our parenting, and that's dealing with your own trauma. You alluded to what it was like growing up with your mother. What kind of mother was she? I mean, my mother was a you know single mom. We grew up, we grew up, you know, kind of poor, and um, so there was some alcoholism. Um, you know, we got whooped, we got yelled at a lot. I have two sisters. I'm the oldest of of uh, three, so we knew that we had to act a certain way. We knew we had to be cautious in certain in certain um, situations. Um, you internalized and knew what your mother was going through. You understood like yeah. the place that she was in, and you knew how to react based on that. We exactly that. We we definitely you had to learn how to read someone. You know, from the moment my mother woke up until she went to bed, I had to figure out how to protect myself. And I'm not saying that she was in there beating on me, but just like when, you know, when someone is in survival mode, they can project that onto you. So it'll be a look. It'll be a tone of voice. It'll be it it would be getting hit sometimes, being yelled at, name calling. Um, And so you have to figure out, like, what can I say? What can I do to make everything easier? And that's a lot to do as a child because you can't be a child anymore. You have to be quiet. You have to go sit down somewhere. You can't question anything. Um, and that's, that's not what I, I definitely did not want that for my, my own house at all. When you finally realized you were pregnant, Gia was coming into the world, you started reading parenting Mm -hmm. books, experts. Mm -hmm. What were those books and those experts not giving you as a black mother? Yeah, I was reading, I remember I read Brain Rules for Baby. I really wanted to understand what brain development, because I, I didn't understand that. That was important to me. And that's how, I, that's how I got drawn into positive parenting and the gentle parenting movement. And so I went and sought out um, parent coaches and parent experts in that, in that area. I came across people like Janet Lansbury and Rebecca Eanes and... Um, you know, white women. And so when I would Mm -hmm. go onto their pages and I'm looking at them just like, this does not seem realistic for me. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't talk like this. I don't, it's like, who talks like this? And Mm -hmm. so I I went and I found a black uh, positive parenting group and I joined that group. And that was what really helped educate me um, to see that there was so many more of us doing this work that I wasn't alone and that, I could ask questions in a safe way. Only problem was that group 
was also full of respectability, which at that point I was becoming more radicalized. So Mm. as I'm going down this journey to positive parenting, I'm also starting my decolonizing journey. I'm also realizing like there's a really big piece missing in how we talk about parenting with black parents. So this group was so respectable that I was just like, I got to start my own because I can't do this with y'all. And when you say respectable, what do you mean by that? We still have people in this group, this black parenting group saying things like race doesn't matter, saying things like um, the founder of the group said something to the effect of my son's get really upset whenever they see a black girl and they and he says hi and they don't smile. I really think that, you know, we need to figure out how to teach our black girls like how to be more friendly. And I was just like, let me, you ain't got to worry about me. I was like, man, you done lost your damn mind. Teach your son right. that we that we do not have to smile and and giggle for him. I, I was like, this is this is this is feeling this is feeling real real uh uh patriarchal white supremacist up in here. So let me let me go ahead and go on. So I, I got with another friend of mine and we started our group. You're listening to the Our Body Politic Presents series. This week, we're bringing you the podcast Truth Be Told with their episode Protection with parenting coach Yolanda Williams on raising healthy, free children. I'm really struck by the use of adult supremacy. And I think I know yeah. what you're talking about. You describe parenting your daughter as being a co-creator of her life. Mm-hmm. That is really interesting. What does being a co-creator look like with a child? So um, Gia is four. She's autistic. She is non-speaking. Um, and I still feel like we are trying to co-create. And I say trying because I don't always get it right. <laughs> and what that means for me is I'm allowing her to teach me stuff. And I, and she, and I teach her at the same time. I learn from Gia a lot. And mm. So when I think about co-creating, I'm just thinking about the fact that she is a whole person without me. She is not my mini me. She is her. She is Gia. She has thoughts and feelings and and wants and things that I need to learn in order to allow her to be herself. The one thing I never want to do is make her feel like who she is is not good enough because that's how I felt growing up. But as I parent her, I want her to be, look at me as not just this authority figure. I want her just to see me as someone that she's safe with, someone that almost like, almost like intergenerational, like solidarity, because she Mm. is able to make decisions sometimes and do things sometimes that I didn't realize she could do because I didn't let her do them. So at the heart of your work is your desire for your daughter to be liberated and carefree and confident. And I agree with you on that. But when I read that, I thought about how so many times in my life I've heard people say with a little disdain in their voice, specifically black folks, well, white parents let their kids just do anything, Mm -hmm. be free, as if Mm -hmm. that is an amoral position to be in, to let your children be themselves. Say more about that. Do you hear the programming? There's programming there. That's a program. Be programmed to not see ourselves as free, as equal, as the as people who are uh, fully um, humans 
we're programmed to see ourselves that way and they're programmed to see us that way. So that's why when people are like, um, that's some white people stuff. I'm just like, who told you that? Who told you that? Because last time I checked our ancestors back, you know, on these plantations, they learned how to be parents from white people. So who told you that? We learned this brutality from white people. The majority of people in this country are white. So can we stop pretending like it's only black folks that are that are violent or 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 white folks that are able to be loving and and gentle? That's not the case. I think at the heart of it, though, consciously people are thinking, oh, I'm keeping my black children safe. It's not about letting my child do and be who they are. It's about them being safe. And that's the constant tightrope, even me, that I walk as I'm doing this work. I'm, I'm never going to be at the final destination of conscious parenting. This is, it's a journey. Um, and it, it, it changes as Gia grows and as I grow, you know, and as I age. Um, the thing is, we know historically, because of the violence of whiteness, that our children can be snatched from us at any time. We know this. Um, we discuss intergenerational trauma, but we, we, we talk about it from, the, from a place of we're passing down this trauma to, to our children. But what we're really passing down is an awareness of whiteness, almost like an innate, like, we need to survive this. We've, we're constantly walking around in fear and anxious, and um, nothing, nothing good can ever come from that. But I'm looking at it more of a, as a survival technique. I'm looking at it as my body can knows looking at my daughter, like I got to keep her safe, but I will, I refuse to be the oppressor in order to keep her safe. To this point you're making, there was this study done back in 2015 by Pew Research that found that we hold on to this belief that physical discipline is necessary to keep black children out of the streets, out of prison, out of police officers sight. But it doesn't do that. We adopted mm-hmm. this practice of beating children from white slave masters. This is well documented. And historians have found no evidence that this form of physical discipline existed before West African societies came here during the slave trade. But somewhere along the way, we adopted this idea that beating our children is biblical. How did that happen? This is why I like to look at things from a systemic point of view. It's like systems thinking. Because when you start to look at it that way, you realize how all of these systems play into each other, right? So so we have um, the systems of like capitalism, patriarchy, white supremacy at the top. And then what comes underneath those things are all the isms, the racism, the sexism, the childism. In the middle of those, what keeps all of that in place is religion. Because if we didn't have religion, you wouldn't be able to oppress uh, the black people. You wouldn't be able to dehumanize them that way. You wouldn't have been able to do that to women. You wouldn't be able to do that to children. So when we start looking at these systems and how they all work together, it really behooves us to be like, who does this benefit for us to continue to do this? And I think the issue is that we have really internalized that we deserve violence, that we cannot, we cannot learn without it. Because I want to understand how um, you feel like your child cannot possibly learn without, without 
being hurt. And I'm not just talking about physical. I'm talking about verbally, too, because a lot of parents will be like, well, I don't hit my child. But then you cussing them out or calling them names or making them do military exercises or putting them in timeout, which is pretty much isolation. And Mm -hmm. I want us to also look at the parallels to the carceral system, because we're out here in these streets marching, talking about how our lives matter. But then we go home and we duplicate harmful systems of oppression in the carceral state and in white supremacy and in patriarchy. Like, how how that work? We have to look at who is this benefiting for us to continue on this path? Because if we really look outside these windows and in this world and and historically, uh, you know, most people across race and cultures hit their kids. Is it working? Is this world a better place? Are we more prosperous? As Yolanda said, part of this work of decolonizing our parenting practices is also giving grace to ourselves and the people who raised us. To forgive your parents for being human. In many ways, it's forgiving yourself for the missteps and mistakes we all make. I shared a little of this with my mom. Yeah, you know, the thing, the epiphany that I had when Yolanda told me that she grew up not feeling wanted was that I think when your parents are in a fight or flight state, like you, you were in survival mode as a single mother, that we as children can interpret that is that I am a burden versus Mm. this is just a a person who is trying to survive and make it and do the best for their kids. Mm -hmm. It really is an epiphany. Did you ever feel like that? I think there are, there are parts of it. You know, mm. when you say things like you weren't planned, those things, they, they do make you feel like, well, if I wasn't a part of this, you know, things might be easier. You just internalize it a little bit. Yeah, I can understand it. But now I understand it, though. Like, that is the gift of this conversation and learning this stuff is like, once I can see it, it doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt any less, but it makes me realize that it wasn't true. Anytime you want to ask me anything, I look forward to our conversations. I'm looking forward to sharing with you. And I, uh, I'm going to re-examine myself to continue to try to grow. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Thank you, Mom. All right. That was the podcast, Truth Be Told, hosted by Tanya Mosley and their episode protection. You can subscribe to Truth Be Told wherever you get your podcast. On Twitter, they're at Dear Truth Be Told. Coming up next, our weekly roundtable sip in the political tea gives us some wisdom about how to advocate for yourself with your medical providers and the pandemic's impact on our mental health with Dr. Kafita Patel and Dr. Callie Cyrus. We've been in a marathon for two to three years at this point, and that you are going to need time to recover. I think we're going about our day to day while all these catastrophes are happening and not accounting for the fact that there has been stress on stress on stress. You're listening to Our Body Politic.
Each week on the show, we bring you a roundtable called Sippin' the Political Tea. Joining me this week is Dr. Kavita Patel, primary care physician and former Obama White House Health Policy Director. Welcome back, Dr. Patel. Thank you for having me, friend. And we've got Dr. Callie Cyrus, psychiatrist and activist in Washington, D.C. Hi, Dr. Cyrus. Hi, so happy to be here. This week, we're going to discuss the pandemic's impact on mental health, the broader questions of equity in healthcare, and how we can all be better medical advocates for ourselves and for our loved ones. I want to start with you, Dr. Cyrus. Uh, in a USA Today Suffolk University poll, nearly nine in 10 respondents said the U.S. was in a full-blown mental health crisis. I will say that before the studio time today, I had a meeting with my psychiatrist, who I see like quarterly just to check in. And I was like, well, I'm having some, you know, stressful family issues. Do you think I should go on an antidepressant? And she was like, it's spring. You'll probably get a mood boost from that. And, you know, being able to have someone who has treated me for years and who I can discuss these things with has been really helpful. But as a psychiatrist, how are you seeing this pandemic play out for people who may not have already established a trusted relationship uh, with someone around their mental health or may not have money or may not trust the system? Really good question. I think the main thing about why this is a crisis is because people don't have access to that before all this happened and are now scrambling or really trying to dive in and find someone to get that help from. I know at least myself and other colleagues, our emails, our phone lines, people have been really... <laughs> you know, trying to get in touch with us in mass to try to establish services. And we have our own issues going on. Plus, at least my patient caseload is quite full for what my schedule allows. So I think so much of this crisis is that it's all happening at one time and we haven't had the infrastructure or the services or even the cultural, I think, acceptance that we needed help before. I think the second thing that's really important is, is that you've had someone that you've known who you trust and has been able to meet you multiple times and give you advice based on that knowledge of you and that history. And that is something that is increasingly difficult when, one, I'm receiving new patients who I'm just meeting who are in crisis. I'm not sure what their experience with crisis has been in the past. They've had a history of maybe getting through things in a way that I'm not sure. How do I know that you need medication in this moment? We're seeing people for the first time putting into words what's going on with them and having to make these decisions about What's the best next thing for them to do in a situation like this with resources that are just woefully inadequate, which has been clear to so many people? I want to bring you in, Dr. Patel. So the World Health Organization said in the first year of the pandemic, anxiety and depression increased by 25 percent across the world. And that same study showed that young people are particularly affected. How are you seeing things manifest with younger patients and and how are you meeting those needs? The way we're seeing it is in almost every aspect of medical care. Keep in mind, by the time someone gets to the 15-minute visit with me or one of my colleagues, that's 0.01% of their entire experience. So we're just seeing a small glimpse of it, but we're seeing it in a lot of the things that we have to do, what I call catch up. We've had so many people who have not had care just for a variety of different reasons for two years going on maybe three in some cases. And we're seeing children who are behind in vaccinations, but more troubling behind in milestones. I don't think the world understands like the tsunami of despair and grief and stress that we're going to see for generations. We do these screening questions. You know, we've got this like kind of a, 
I say we have the health system that we wanted, you know, kind of by design. Like we've got the electronic computers and the this and the that and check boxes. And I probably think the thing that I'm trying to learn how to do is I move all that stuff aside. And I'm like, I need you to tell me how you are. Like just just how are you mm. day to day? And the most common question that I can ask all people is, how often are you awake at night worrying about your family or about yourself or fill in the blank? And almost to a person, 100% of them say, I worry every single day. You know, it's showing up in everything. And it's in people who had COVID, didn't have COVID, know somebody who died of COVID. It's in all of us. Yeah, absolutely. And Dr. Cyrus, back to you. How do you think about meeting this moment for kids and caregivers? I, I think everything that Dr. Patel just mentioned is maybe the way that I think about it as well. It's naming that we've been in a marathon for two to three years at this point and that you are going to need time to recover. I think we're going about our day to day while all of these catastrophes are happening and not accounting for the fact that there has been stress on stress on stress, everyday building, plus people were going through stress before the pandemic. So when I'm talking to my patients um, or we're talking about the mental health of their children as well, I just try to remind them that there isn't just one reason that's accounting for this, that there are so many things that have happened that we haven't been naming. So I think what I've been trying to do is have folks realize that they're not going through this alone, that everyone is going through this, the, you know, through this worldwide sort of experience right now, while your details might look different from someone else and that you're not the only one who's going through it, which somehow is a bit reassuring, but that we need to find a way to come up with a language, come up with a process, come up with some sort of strategy that you and your family can get through the day without it all feeling so crippling. We could go on about this topic for a long time, but I want to just get some quick responses. We interviewed molecular biologist and science educator Dr. Raven Baxter, known widely as Dr. Raven the Science Maven, and she's been chronicling her multi-month journey with long COVID. My initial infection period lasted about a week and a half. But then I would say that progressed into lingering symptoms that looked quite a lot different than what my initial infection was. And so the lingering symptoms were neurological issues, fatigue, immense fatigue, digestive issues. I had a total lack of appetite. For those dealing with long COVID, do you have any advice on how to seek the best medical care and how to do self-care and have other people care for you? A lot of times people don't want to ask people to care for them, even when they really need it. I'll start with you, Dr. Cyrus. So I think the first thing is to take care of yourself. You know your body. You are the only one who knows your body, no matter what someone else tells you. We don't know what you're feeling. We don't know what you're thinking. You know that better than anyone else. I think the world and our bodies are telling us, slow down, and mm -hmm. that is okay. And it's not something we're accustomed to doing that we really have to honor right now. I think the second thing around asking for help, and this comes up so often in my practice, is, well, everyone's busy. They got their own thing. Why would I help? And no one's asking each other for help. And we're going through these processes separately, which is isolating. You can't do it alone. So I do think that what's the harm if you ask somebody for help? What's the worst thing that's going to happen? Ask yourself that and really answer that question. But I think that's what we have to start doing is really pushing ourselves to do things that we, we probably know are good for us, but are hard to do, like slow down and ask for help. This is a time when the consequences might actually be much, much worse 
if you don't start doing these things now. Yeah. And Dr. Patel, how, how do you think about these things? I'm going to be super um, checklisty utilitarian about this because I've had so many patients now that I feel like have not been able to advocate for themselves. So number one, if you are even a hint of like, maybe this is long COVID, maybe it's not. Number one, ask your doctor if they have experience dealing with this. And if they kind of look at you and if the response is like, not, not really, I know it's not easy, but try to find somebody or ask, like, do you have somebody that you can recommend that has seen cases of long COVID or works with one of the academic medical centers like Dr. Cyrus Hopkins has one, GW in the DC area. Unfortunately, they're all full. That brings me to number two. I think that so many uh, people are being dismissed for their long COVID because they're dismissed as, no, let's just put them on an antidepressant. That may be part of the treatment regimen, but some people are dismissing it like, you know, they're just depressed. Uh, So start writing things down because it's like everything. You don't know until you actually kind of chronicle it. Do it over even like a day and that'll help. And then number three, have someone who is with you in some of these visits. A lot of them are happening virtually. Um, We sometimes hear what we want to hear. And then because of so much of the way long COVID is affecting our kind of processing and our brain functions, we don't retain all this information that you might hear in a, you know, 30 minute visit. So try to kind of have like people in your circle, in your corner, who you can tap in and say, I need you to kind of come with me because one, I'm scared. And two, I just need a little bit of help in case this is happening. Yeah, that's incredibly helpful. And you are listening to Sipping the Political Tea on Our Body Politic. I am Farai Chidea. This week, we're discussing the pandemic's impact on mental health and equity in healthcare with Dr. Kavita Patel, primary care physician and former Obama White House health policy director, and Dr. Callie Cyrus, psychiatrist and activist in Washington, D.C. So I want to switch into talking about medical equity and healthcare disparities. We've been covering disparities in infant and maternal mortality over the life of this show. And just recently, there was a study of 1.8 million births in Florida, which found that Black babies were twice as likely to survive when their doctor of record for infant care after the birth was Black. And of course, the CDC has been Uh, tracking how Black women in the U.S. are almost three times more likely to die from complications of childbirth than white women. So, Dr. Cyrus, let's approach this from the standpoint of birthing parents. Um, If you're expecting, and Black, and you're reading studies like this, what can you do to have a dialogue with your providers? I think the first thing you can do is, if you read that article somewhere, you know that someone else wrote it, you can use that as a stepping stone to speak with your physician. I think some folks are might be a little awkward about saying, well, I know that if I don't have a Black doctor, this thing might happen. I read this somewhere. But you can actually bring this in and say, I'd like to talk more about this. This is something that I've been reading. I see it in the news. Can you help me understand what contributes to these types of outcomes? Because one, that will help you break the ice, help your physician whoever's working with you know that you are aware of this information, that this is a topic you are bringing to them if they don't bring it to you. And they should be able to talk to you about it and come up with some solutions as to how they can reassure you that they're going to be understanding your process. Just like a lot of the research on healthcare disparities and race concordance or identity concordance, um, there's something probably psychological or just having a shared experience that you're expecting 
a sense of safety. And what you're going to have to do is try to create that with whoever you have access to and taking care of you. And if your doctor isn't keyed into this or cued into this, this is something you have to bring to the table. Yeah. And Dr. Patel, pivoting over to kind of these adult questions of health equity. I personally recently had another situation where someone close to me experienced a negative health outcome because their doctor missed a really important chance to intervene earlier based on what should have been a pretty straightforward um, test result that just didn't get heated. Um, I say another because one of my best friends and my grandmother both died after failures of care. So this is very personal to me. Uh, Both of them and the, the first person I mentioned were all black women. Let's approach this from the standpoints of doctor and patient. You know, what can medical practices and even medical schools do to help doctors navigate health equity? You first, Dr. Patel. Yeah, I mean, A to Z. So for the first time in a long time, we've had finally, more women of color graduating medical schools than ever in history. We've had always a a bit more of a tilt in the last two decades of more women than men. We've also had kind of historic numbers of black and brown women specifically graduating. So it just helps to walk into a room and have somebody who looks like you. Even if that's a doctor that you may not ultimately connect with, that's okay, but it helps. And I think in terms of equity, Teaching equity, I find, is one of those checkboxes things like, yes, we have a curriculum on equity. Inequity is what people, is what we live. It's what we experience. So I do think that one of the most humbling things, especially for my male counterparts, myself, because obviously I would be lying if I said I understand the experience of a Black woman, is to actually kind of walk a mile in their shoes. And that is something that I would advocate, not just medical schools, nursing schools, dental, any health professional to actually take from real patients who are going through, Fry, what your family has gone through, and actually go through and then take on the role of the patient. So, for example, if you know that you've seen a patient's chart and they had had an abnormal test result, an abnormal blood sugar for days, and many doctors and many pharmacists and nurses missed it, you take on the role of the patient and ask, what was it that I could have done? Why did this happen to me? And then it starts to actually put equity in the lens of these are people, these are incredible outcomes, devastation. But then the third point I just want to make for I is that we have to be willing to say we made a mistake. My most popular phrase is, I don't know, I will try to find the answer. I think our society needs to be more accepting of that. I don't think equity will ever be this kind of one solution um, or one approach will create equity, but we'll just keep chipping away at the inequities that we've structurally put in place in healthcare. And And Dr. Cyrus, how do you view this from provider side? How do you view this as a system where, you know, you've got medical providers, you've got patients, a lot of stress, fast deadlines, endless tests? It's a system. If we're thinking about disparities and inequity and what we can do, there are different layers of intervention. So there's a systemic layer, there's us as humans and individuals doctors who are interacting with patients. There's a community level. Um, I think at the end of the day, it all goes down to money. We need more funding in our system to hire more nurses, to hire more physicians. That's what we ultimately need at the end of the day. 
I think as it pertains to the doctor-patient, um, this is something that I've been quite passionate about as a, a medical educator who specializes in coming up with diversity education. It's really hard to talk about this stuff. We usually, like Dr. Patel said, check a box on having the course, but we have to do more than that. You have to really have the conversation because if you think about physicians and folks who are medical providers, what is our lens? Rarely is there someone else who's a Black queer androgynous presenting woman like myself in a room with other doctors. The way that I see the world is very different from other people. And so how do you put aside the assumptions that you knee-jerk make, even a lot of the biases, but even the ones that are in their favor, and and not just assume, but you have to actually see it from their perspective and, and take it from the nitty-gritty of really asking them where they're coming from and what they're doing. One underused approach is a standardized patient program. So in my former hat, um, I was in charge of the actors who pose as patients and created really out-of-the-box scenarios that medical students have to sit down with an actor who presents with a situation that's not your typical, I'm just here with diabetes, but maybe I'm also queer or I'm trans or I don't speak English. And you have to go through the experience of trying to interview and speak with this patient. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for time, but I want to thank you both for bringing your compassion and your wisdom to us and to everyone listening, um, because we got to take care of ourselves. It's a marathon, not a sprint, folks. Um, So thank you, Dr. Cyrus. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Dr. Patel. Thank you. We were speaking with Dr. Kavita Patel, primary care physician and former Obama White House health policy director, and Dr. Callie Cyrus, psychiatrist and activist in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I'm the executive producer and host, Farai Chidea. Our co-executive producer is Jonathan Blakely. Bianca Martin is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister is our booker and producer. Emily J. Daly is our producer. Our associate producer is not Tina Bean. Production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at Three C's. Today's episode was produced with the help of Steve Lack and Lauren Schild and engineered by Mike Gaylor. And a big thank you to Tanya Mosley, the host and creator of the podcast, Truth Be Told, plus her team, Ayana Angel, Aisha Brown, James T. Green, and Enrico Benjamin. Truth Be Told is a production of TMI Productions in association with Fearless Media. This program is produced with support from the Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.